Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the big kabloom. Today in New Jersey, Trump Plaza, the last remnant of Donald Trump's failed casino empire, literally imploded. Trump's Jersey casinos had been an embarrassing financial failure marked by multiple bankruptcies. Now, I could do a joke here about how you've got to be a really crappy businessman to fail at casinos in Atlantic City. But, you know, let's let's not attack a retiree. Trump ultimately lost his casinos. This one was acquired out of bankruptcy by real billionaire Carl, Carl Icahn. It had been sitting empty for seven years, becoming an eyesore and a safety hazard. And so it was finally demolished at 9.07 a.m. by virtue of dynamite. Kabloom. And now this one small corner of America can finally move on from Trump. The mayor, Marty Small, called it a truly great day in Atlantic City. The truly great day comes as President Biden made clear last night that he, too, is eager to move on from Trump. I'm tired of talking about Donald Trump. Don't want to talk about him anymore. For four years, all that's been in the news is Trump. The next four years, I want to make sure all the news is the American people. I'm tired of talking about Trump. Word, word, word. Good applause line. Likewise, in her first network interview with the Today Show this morning, Vice President Kamala Harris wouldn't take the orange tinted bait. Do you think that President Trump should be criminally charged? You know, right now, Savannah, I'm focused on what we need to do to get relief to American families. And that is my highest priority. It's our administration's highest priority. It's our job. It's a job we were elected to do. And that's my focus. But you're a former prosecutor, so I got to ask yes. you, is that a strong case against the president, a criminal case that Mitch McConnell had raised as a possibility? I haven't reviewed the case through the lens of being a prosecutor. I'm reviewing the case of COVID in America through the lens of being the vice president of America. Nope, too shy to VP Harris's point, an average of 1.7 million vaccine doses per day are now being administered, according to the White House's coronavirus coordinator. That is up from less than a million a day before Biden took office. At this rate, the administration will easily overshoot their initial goal of administering 100 million doses in their first 100 days. So the president set a new goal last night, promising that by July there will be enough vaccine doses available for every American. When is every American who wants it going to be able to get a vaccine? By the end of July of this year. We have, when we came into office, there was only a 50 million uh, doses that are available. We have now, by the end of July, we'll have over 600 million doses, enough to vaccinate every single American. President Biden also set the ambitious goal of safely reopening schools through the eighth grade by the end of his first 100 days. But the administration's first big test is whether their sweeping $1.9 trillion COVID relief package can get through Congress and land on the president's desk before current benefits expire on March 4th. And in the sharpest contrast with his predecessor, President Biden spoke compassionately and convincingly on the need to go big. Now's the time we should be spending 
Now is the time to go big. You have over 10 million people unemployed. We need unemployment insurance. We need to make sure that, you know, you have 40% of the children in America are talk about food shortage, 60% of it. Did you ever think you'd see a day in Milwaukee? You'd see in the last six months, people lining up in their automobiles for an hour or for as far as you could see to get a bag of food. What? I mean, this is the United States of America, for God's sake. We can't deal with that. Biden's empathy and straight talk may help explain why his approval rating stands at 62 percent in the latest political morning consult poll. That's 10 points better than Trump's highest approval rating during his entire single term, which peaked at 52 percent in that same morning consult poll, but never managed to even struggle up to 50 percent ever in the gold standard Gallup poll. I'm joined now by Simone Sanders, senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris. And Simone, it's always great to see you. Uh, let's start um, with this vaccine goal. Um, getting everyone available a vaccine by July, that is very ambitious. How much is that goal going to be tempered by sort of the unknowns? We've now seen Texas buried in a snowstorm. People don't even have power. That's got to set back those numbers there. You know, is there wiggle room built into that or is that... A, is is that sort of a minimum that uh, the administration thinks they can achieve? Well, thanks for having me tonight, Joy. First of all, it's always great to see you. I would say, and the president spoke to this last night, and it's something we're going to continue to reiterate, that that is our goal, and it's a goal that we believe we will be able to meet. But to be clear, having a vaccine available to every American that wants one uh, is not the same thing as getting vaccines into arms. We will have enough to for everyone to get the vaccine, but the, the question you asked is specifically about vaccinations. And that is where our COVID um response team is working with governors and mayors across the country to get that done. That is where you've seen the administrations um, working with governors and states to institute these mass vaccination sites, these federally funded um, community vaccination centers. When we've stood up two in California and Oakland and L.A., three in Texas, actually Arlington, Texas, Dallas and Houston, two in, uh, in New York State, Brooklyn and Queens and more are coming online. The way to get vaccinations into arms is to make the vaccine more accessible, which is why just this week the administration has added an additional two million doses going to pharmacies across the country, like your Walgreens or your CVSs. And the administration is partnering with community, uh, is, is a new program um, that the CDC and HRSA, all these acronyms, but these are the really important folks out there, uh, the scientists doing this work, and has made it available for one million doses to be available to community health centers. So these are various ways that the administration is working to ensure that these vaccinations are going to get into arms. Let's talk about schools, because, uh, you know, the the big issue for schools is that teachers want to feel safe going in. Teachers unions are looking out for their members and saying, look, if teachers are going to take a risk of getting sick and dying, we don't want to send them back in on mass. The administration has now said they want uh, schools open five days a week, not one day a week. A lot of parents will be very happy about that, especially communities of color where, you know, school is also nutrition. It's also really important to have in-person learning. Your boss, Kamala Harris, was on uh, the Today Show this morning and she was asked about whether teachers need to be vaccinated before that can happen. I want you to take a look at that. Can you reassure teachers who are listening right now that it is safe for them to go back to school even if they are not vaccinated? Teachers should be a priority. 22 states, I believe, have prioritized but teachers in terms of but vaccinations. But if they're not but vaccinated, the states have the con- is it safe for them? 
Well, I think that we have to decide if we can put in place safe measures. This is why, and it's so important, we pass the American Rescue Plan. I don't want to beat it to death, but I just, I know there are teachers listening, and the CDC has said they don't have to be vaccinated to go back to school. We think they should be a priority. priority. We think they should, we think they should be a priority. Just to get to the finer point of it that Savannah was trying to get to, does the administration, is the administration open to mandating in some way through the Department of Education saying that in order to reopen schools, teachers should have the same kind of access to early vaccination that like essential workers, that medical workers are getting? Should teachers, should it be a mandate from the administration that teachers get access to the vaccine? So, Joy, this is a very important and a very different and distinct question that you're asking. And the answer is that, one, we are going to let the science lead us, and two, that that is not something the administration can do. For folks out there listening at home, it is up to the states to decide who exactly is getting the vaccine and how people are prioritized. The president and vice president have been clear. They believe that teachers should be prioritized uh, in states to get the vaccines, just like frontline workers. Um, And they also agree with the CDC guidance that that is not a requirement for schools to get open. I want to remind folks that schools are open right now in places all over this country. And actually, more schools are open right now and have opened since uh, the president and vice president have were sworn into office than at this time during the pandemic uh, last year, or pardon me, since the open, since the uh, height of the pandemic last year. That's important point. So progress is being made. And the way that we get schools open and operating safely is to uh, make sure that they have the mitigation measures. The CDC has noted that vaccination of teachers is one of those mitigation measures, along with social distancing, masking, ventilation in schools. And the bottom line is that schools need these resources, which is why it is very important, as the vice president said this morning, that we pass the American Rescue Plan. The American Rescue Plan has a lot. It has money to get vaccinations into arms. It has money for resources for schools. Uh, Really, relief that families need with those direct payments and those direct checks. So that's why we're urging Congress that we need to get this done. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Simone Sanders, thank you for answering that. That is a question I think a lot of people have had. So I really appreciate you being here tonight. Go get warm. <laughs> appreciate you. Thank you. And I'm joined now by Yamiche Alcindor, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and Chris Liu, former White House cabinet secretary in the Obama administration. And Yamiche, you know, th- th- there's been this whole back and forth about um, the administration's like specific policy on schools. And I'm glad that actually Simone did answer that really specifically. She said that's not in our power, right? We don't have the power to force 
um, you know, this this request that a lot of teachers unions have that teachers get vaccinated like frontline workers. That's up to the states. That's like a specific answer that I think a lot of people needed. Just talk about the messaging difference that we're seeing now on covid. Um, do you feel that it's a marked difference or do you feel like these questions are still hanging out there? Well, it's clear that the Biden administration, if we're, if, if we're comparing them to their predecessors, that they are answering questions and being, it seems, more forthcoming and more transparent about what they're doing. They also have said over and over again they're going to let the science lead. The question still hanging in the air, though, is how do we reopen schools safely and how does the CDC's yeah. guidelines really dovetail with what the president and the vice president are saying in fact? There are a lot of teachers out there that are very worried about going back into schools without being vaccinated. Now, it's true the Biden administration yeah. is saying that's up to the states. But let's remember, this is still the federal government. So there are ad advocates, there are teachers unions, there are people who are wondering, can the Biden administration do something to give these states a sort of carrot so that they will then be influenced and they will want to make sure that they prioritize teachers, not simply saying we recommend it, but also saying here's some dollars, right. here's some other sort of thing that, that can happen. The other thing that's really confusing is that the CDC guidelines as of today 75% of the schools that they um, would say are in red zones, the schools that would would, ha would not be able to reopen because of community spread, 75% of schools and children are in those zones. That's a big question because there yeah. are experts who are saying the science says that community spread is not tied to what's going on in school. So there are a lot of frustrated um, people who are looking at these guidelines and saying this administration, it said that it's letting the science lead. But here's a case where the science isn't exactly lining up with what the Biden administration is saying. All that is to say that you can feel at least and you can think that. The Biden administration, it says that they're doing their best to, to, to marry these two things, but there's still, Joy, frankly, a lot of confusion and a lot of fearful people in communities um, that are really not exactly sure what to do. Yeah, and, and the confusion, and that's a fair point. And, you know, Chris, let, let's talk about this, because there's a thing in pol politics that, in my mind, is should be pretty simple. Under-promise and over-deliver, right? Promise something you know you can way clear. And so they did that with the 100 million doses. They said, we're going to do 100 million, but they must have known in their head and had a benchmark that they really could do what they're saying they're going to do now, which is have, like, 300 million at least doses available. So they're going to clear that. I want to contrast that with the way the previous president over-promised and then ultimately under-delivered. Take a listen. This is cut two of my producers. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Come. You have to be calm. It'll go away. We're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. And it will go away. Just stay calm. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. We're rounding the turn. We're rounding the corner. It's going away. We think it's going to have a very good ending for us. So uh, that I can uh, assure you. Chris, that obviously did not work <laughs> because he, there, he, was, he was actually not planning to do anything. And then nothing happened. And then we are where we are. But did that leave the Biden administration in such a hole? That now, even when they're delivering, they are over delivering on the 100 million doses. That is just an actual fact. But if they're not sort of perfect, if they're not like, hitting every mark and answering every question, does the failure of the previous administration kind of leave them at a bit of a deficit? Yeah. And the deficit right now, Joy, is a deficit of trust in government. So let's contrast what we you just showed to what we saw last night, which is a president relying on 
on facts and science, setting very clear goals about vaccinations and school reopenings, but also tempering expectations. There was no boasting. There was no declaration of victory. There was no touting of unproven cures. And But it, beyond that, of just trying to level to the American people, it's doing the hard work, which is not dramatic, but the hard work of making government work more effectively. And that's functionally what has to happen. It's about using the Defense Production Act to get more PPEs, more testing to ramp up the vaccination manufacturing process to get this out to people. It's putting out the guidance on CDC re reopening of schools. As importantly, my old department, the Department of Labor, is putting out standards for workplaces as well. And look, none of this is the theatrics that we saw and it's hard. And you're right. And I give the the, the Biden uh, administration credit. They put out a hundred million goal. And, you know, when people said, you know, what, that might not be high enough. They've now ramped it up to a million and a half. And now they've said six hundred million by the end of July. And they've put out these clear, audacious goals. And they're challenging their staff to hit these goals. And they're going to be measured by it. And I think that's look, that's a better way to approach it, because that's certainly what the American people want. They want competence and they want experience. Yeah. And they want to check in the mail because, you know, their next big test is if they can clear the hurdle of making sure that the the Joe Mansions and the Christian cinemas don't stand in the way and people actually get that physical check in the mail. Um, I think that's another benchmark is, you know, again, under promise, over deliver and send checks. <laughs> it really works uh, in politics. Yumiche Alcindor, Chris Liu, thank you very much. Really appreciate you both. And up next on the readout, the Republican Party that Rush Limbaugh helped create and Trump inherited. It's a party that exists not to govern, but to lead insurrections, to lie and to troll Democrats. Plus, in a Texas town gripped by snow and cold and no electricity, a mayor tells his freezing constituents, quote, the city and county, along with the power providers, owe you nothing. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. That kind of governance is in keeping with the fine tradition of the Republican Party. And as bad as that is, believe it or not, it's not the absolute worst thing about the crisis in Texas. And that is coming up as the readout continues. Rush Limbaugh died today at the age of 70 from complications of lung cancer. And I would argue that he is among the three people in recent American history who had the most influence in building the modern Republican Party, none of whom are named Reagan or Bush. This is a party that was built by right wing media, by Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch and Rush Limbaugh. They influence the way Republicanism and conservatism sound and the way it attacks its opponents and what generations of self-described conservatives think. One of Limbaugh's crusades during the 2008 primaries was called Operation Chaos, an obsession on his part to change the way Republicans do politics by urging his listeners to vote en masse for, in their states for Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama in Democratic primaries to keep the perceived weaker candidate and the one who represented the feminists he had so villainized for years as feminazis in the race. The success or the definition of the success of Operation Chaos is just that. Is there chaos? Uh, the original purpose of this before the Texas and Ohio primaries was to make sure that Obama got bloodied up politically. 
I want Hillary to stay in this, Laura. Uh, this is too good a soap opera. We need Barack Obama bloodied up politically, and it's it's obvious that the Republicans are not going to do it and don't have the stomach for it. The point of this has been to extend it exactly as it has been extended, to have these people go at each other's throats. Uh, you know, Obama's now been bloodied up. He's no longer this messianic candidate. Uh, she already has half the country that hates her, according to disapproval numbers. So we've we've succeeded here even beyond our wildest objectives. You hear that? Well, the campaign didn't succeed. Barack Obama did get the nomination, and a lot of people wrote it all off as a failure at the time. But Operation Chaos had contributed to the polarization of American politics. And more importantly, the idea of injecting chaos and sexism, manipulation, racism, and dirty tricks directly into the artery of the Republican Party, bloodying people up rather than faking compassionate conservatism and trying to get crossover votes, that ultimately would become the defining feature of Republican politics. Rush ultimately got his way. Rush Limbaugh reached millions of listeners via his golden microphone with his shows airing in small stations out in rural America that even Fox News couldn't reach, hardening rural white listeners and weaponizing white male grievance. It was the perfect inheritance for a president who would take Rush-style politics right to the White House and ultimately pin a Presidential Medal of Freedom on one of the GOP's real architects. Joining me now is Dana Milbank of The Washington Post and Charlie Sykes, longtime conservative talk radio host and editor-at-large of The Bulwark. I'm so glad that you guys are here today. You guys are we're booked on the perfect day to talk about this because, Charlie, you know, you used to be in talk radio. I used to be in talk radio. I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh just because you want to listen to the people who are the best at the craft, right? So I would listen to him. I would listen to his show. And what I heard was a guy who took white Americans out there in the hinterlands and, and fed them a narrative of you're the victim. No, 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 you're the victim. Don't feel like there's any privileges coming to you. You're the victim. The brown people, the black people, the women, the feminazis, they're taking it from you. They're taking things from you. And it kept people so hyped, hyper and amped up that he then was able to turn that into politics. And he said the Republicans don't have the stomach for it. But he did. Ultimately, do you do you agree with me that he and Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes ultimately built the current Republican Party? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. You can't overstate Rush Limbaugh's uh, role in basically building up the entertainment wing of the GOP to be absolutely dominant. So, I mean, it's a little bit painful, you know, talking about it on the day that he dies. But I've been working on a piece for Dana's newspaper, where in which I argue that right now we are all living in the world that Rush Limbaugh made in his own image. When you think about what he did uh, and the influence he had, he was an entertainer. He was not a deep thinker. He was not a thought leader, but he shaped so much of the way the right wing transformed itself uh, over the last few years. Um, he popularized what, what uh, you know, he popularized conservative ideas, but he also plays a very central role in the derangement of it. So his legacy is a conservative movement that is, in fact, more dishonest, more open to dishonesty, uh, crueler, dumber than it was before. And you can't understand Donald Trump without understanding that Rush Limbaugh was in many ways not, 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 not just the, the guy that, that, that laid the, the groundwork for him, but was in many ways a role model in the way that you could twist truth, the way that you could use insults and ad hominem attacks instead of actually dealing with ideas. Because you know, the bottom line, dirty secret about Rush Limbaugh is he was utterly uninterested in ideas. He was much more he was much more interested in the kind of smash mouth own the liberals politics that Donald Trump was so good at. 
And he was also really one of the pioneers in convincing conservatives to look the other way about lies and conspiracy theories. So it is a dark legacy. And I have to say that one of the real tragedies here, because it's a human tragedy, is that even when he was confronted with his own mortality, he saved the worst for the last. Some of the things that he did in the last six months of his life were among the most indefensible things he ever did. And right now, you look around us, and everything can be traced back to Rush Limbaugh and his influence. Well, I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, Dana, he called, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act's, you know, secret reparations and, and racialized something that had no, no racial undertone to it, other than it definitely lifted people of color on average, you know, more because— Black and brown people had less health care, right? But he racialized it and he got white Americans to hate the Affordable Care Act. He called President Obama Barack the Magic Negro and used his black sidekick as a cover to be able to do like that kind of outright racist stuff. I mean, if any person other than Donald Trump would have been president, it would have been him because he basically was president for the last four years. Yeah, that's a, that's a crucial point, Joy. And you mentioned Barack the Magic Negro. I think that was 2007. It was a few years before Trump started with the birther nonsense. So in that way, you see how Limbaugh yep. was sort of breaking the ice, making the, the pathway for him. Uh, Charlie's point is excellent. It's not really about uh, conservatism. You know, before there was Rush, there was Ronald Reagan, there was Barry Goldwater. Uh, what what Rush brought to the table uh, was attitude, was uh, hatred. He was uh, uh, gaining power in his sphere in the late 80s and uh, the early 90s, exactly when Newt Gingrich was uh, taking over uh, in the House. And it became the, the notion of moving the Republican Party and to a large part of the conservative movement uh, away from being a cooperating participant in American democracy to being an opponent uh, of democracy. So we've seen uh, all the components of that, uh, the conspiracy theories, uh, the racism, uh, the the detachment from reality, and also the notion that your opponent is not uh, sort of the loyal opposition, but it's the enemy. Uh, so in that sense, yeah. uh, you know, Rush created this world that uh, Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity uh, went on uh, to further. But we're all living in his world. Well, and, you know, what's interesting, too, Charlie, is that, the, you know, these kind of figures, you know, you always talk about people who are war, go to war against their own class, FDR, who fought the rich to make sure that there was a, a massive sort of social underpinning. You know, just like Donald Trump, Rush Limbaugh was this rich, privileged guy, never missed a meal, never had a problem, you know, financially, but who also kind of broke the Republican Party from the whole moral majority idea. You know, multiple marriages, you know, they set it aside, the drug addiction issues, they, they set it every kind of sort of moral underpinning that Republicans claim. He said, nah, forget all of that stuff. All you want to do is own the libs, own the libs every day. And he was mad at the Republican Party for a long time that they wouldn't do it. And finally, they they not only did it, they elected his doppelganger to be president. Well, see, that's an interesting point, because, you know, really, you can understand why these two guys bonded with one another, because they kind of reveled in the fact that they could say anything and do anything that Rush Limbaugh yes. could go on the air and refer to a co-ed as a slut or the or, or make fun of Chelsea Clinton, 13 year old woman, make fun of the disabled. And yet you still survive. You never apologize. And, and you're going to hear a lot of conservatives saying, well, Rush Limbaugh was, you know, this funny entertainer. And, you know, he had some some amusing parodies. But you look back on it, and what he did was he normalized 
so much of this, normalize these racial, the, the, the racial attacks, normalize mocking people for their illnesses, including AIDS victims, uh, you know, people who suffer from AIDS, um, and, and normalize that and got the Republican base used to it so that by the time Trump yeah. came along, they they had become accustomed to shrugging off. Well, that he's just joking. He's just being funny. But look, you know, Rush Limbaugh yeah. had a moment if he wanted to be a thought leader. He could have pushed back on some of this, but he he didn't. Yep. He didn't. And again, um, here here we're at. And I'm I'm sorry to be having this conversation on the day that that, that he died, yeah. but but his legacy mm-hmm. um, is so much with us now. And you just cannot understand the modern conservative without understanding the way that he That's that right. he transformed. Absolutely. La- last question, very quickly to you, uh, Dana. There's a thing that happens when sort of the leader of a movement, uh, you know, is gone. And Rush Limbaugh is sort of sui generis. There isn't another person at his level in terms of talk radio. With him and Roger Ailes now, you know, gone and departed, um, what happens to this movement? Does Donald, because Donald Trump's not on the radio. Like, there's, who inherits that role? Everybody in the party is trying to inherit that role now. There is nothing left uh, of the party except uh, the Rush Limbaugh, the Donald Trump types. And you see that what happened uh, with Mitch McConnell now being uh, decimated, even though he actually uh, defended Donald Trump uh, during the impeachment uh, trial itself. So uh, I think you have uh, yeah. uh, you have 50 uh, Rush Limbaugh clones in the Senate at this point. Well, 43. Absolutely. And Mitch McConnell, well, Mitch McConnell can't control any one of them, not one. Uh, Data Milbank, Charlie Sykes, thank you both for being here. Um, really appreciate you both. And up next, you'd think the Texas mayor who said only the strong will survive as his own state is buried in snow and folks are freezing without power would be a shoe in for today's absolute worst. But oh, no, 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 no. There's something even worse in the state of Texas. Stay with us. <laughs> The mayor of a town in Texas is now the former mayor after telling his constituents to quit their griping about the cold weather and the lack of electricity. Mayor Tim Boyd of Colorado City posted a nasty message on Facebook telling suffering Texans, no one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim. It's your choice. And that wasn't all. He went in deeper, adding the city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a darn handout. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Even worse are the Texas politicians who love to champion this Lord of the Flies style of governing because only the strong survive. Dan Patrick The Republican lieutenant governor of Texas once suggested that grandparents would sacrifice their very lives if it meant getting the country back to work during the pandemic. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.
let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves. You're American basically dream. saying that this disease could take your life, but that's not the scariest thing to you. There's something that would be worse than dying. Yeah. Yes, not having a nail salon open when you need it. Then there is former Texas Congressman Ron Paul, father of Rand, who once told a cheering crowd of Republicans that the beauty of his politics is the freedom to be selfish. That's what freedom is all about, taking your own risk. This whole idea that you have to prepare and take care of everybody. I know, I know, that sounds pretty gross. But that's not even the worst. The absolute worst is when you realize that that kind of ideology has been put into actual practice. Just take a look at the Texas power grid. It's the only state-run system that is free from federal control. Texas Republicans proudly deregulated the power market years ago so that the energy companies, not state regulators, could manage and maintain their power plants. Those companies didn't winterize their equipment because that free market system allowed them to put a priority on cheap prices over reliable service. Call it the Texas Enron way. But those choices, that deregulation has led us to where we are now, with millions of Texans struggling to stay warm, safe and alive. And yet, even in the face of that kind of despair, one Texas politician says Texans would happily endure more nights of freezing agony rather than welcome federal oversight. And that is next. As the Texas power outage stretches into a third miserably cold night, Rick Perry, the former secretary of energy and former governor of Texas, has decided to chime in. In a blog post, he wrote, Texans would be without electricity for longer than three days to keep the federal government out of their business. Yeah, right, because everyone loves a spot of hypothermia, am I right? Thankfully, that guy isn't president. The guy who is president, Democrat Joe Biden, will be shipping generators, diesel fuel and water to communication facilities and hospitals in the state to help with the current crisis. I'm joined now by Steve Adler, mayor of Austin, Texas. And Mr. Mayor, I will start by asking you straight out. Uh, is it your view that your constituents would prefer to go on without heat uh, in their homes for another three days if it meant the federal government would stay away? I think the only person that can say that is somebody that hasn't lived that experience. Uh, people in my city are scared, they're frustrated, they're confused, they're angry, and so am I. Uh, to, for, to be out that power like like a third of my community is for over 50 hours at this point uh, is, is asking more of anybody that we should ever ask. Do, do people generally know why the power is out? I mean, do they understand that this is an all-Texas issue, that this isn't the federal government, that this is Texas owns its own power grid and it's all about that? Is Do people... Do people understand that, do you think? I think they understand that it's all about the state. Uh, and, and at this point, I now have my governor blaming the uh, uh, administrative body that, that I think he appointed uh, in this situation. <laughs> it's the uh, Texas Reliability, Electricity Reliability uh, Council of Texas, which is, it's certainly not very reliable. Uh, and, and no one has any answers at this point. We don't know why we're in this place. And we also don't know when we're going to be able to come out of it. Uh, and, and people are angry yeah. and looking for answers and they're not coming. 
We, we do understand that one of the issues is that there was this wave of deregulation um, from 1995 when George W. Bush was governor all the way through Rick Perry's administration in 2000, uh, when he was, came in in 2000, that they just deregulated everything, put everything under state control. Um, and then it wasn't weatherized. No weatherization was put in, no planning for it ever being cold. And now, bam, it's cold. Nothing's weatherized and all the stuff is freezing. And it's oil and gas based and nuclear based energy that's the worst do you what do you make of the fact that despite that people like your ted cruz's your dan crenshaw's your john cornyn's who've gotten a lot of money from oil and gas interest 1.1 million dollars in oil and gas money if you add it all up are all trying to point as is your governor to the green fuels that are like maybe what 10 percent of your energy and i watched my governor on that interview yesterday and and simply not true uh, to suggest that we're in this position because of uh, of the, the the sustainable energy, uh, we lost and dropped about forty five thousand uh, uh, megawatts of power, and almost thirty thousand of that with fossil fuel. It was it was oil. It was it was natural gas. It was coal. Uh, it was even one of the the nuke reactors. So to turn this at this point into uh, political messaging about about climate change mitigation is just is just outrageous. And you are right about the, the deregulation. There's been such a premium on producing energy at a low cost uh, that there is no incentive for someone to actually pay for the insurance policy that's associated with hardening our system so that in a situation where we get to 18 below zero, we can still survive. And that may have been in the past a, an event that no one could fathom. But I've now seen it happen every 10 years, and I think it's going to happen with increased frequency. Uh, we need the regulation. We need to ensure that there are certain minimum standards uh, that are made by, maintained by generation in this state. Yeah, and I can't imagine having to deal with that, plus the pandemic, and people have to go to shelters during a pandemic, and communities of color suffering more. It is it is a lot. So I really wish you all the best. Lots of prayers for you, um, Austin Mayor Steve Adler, and your constituents and everyone in Texas. Thank you very much, sir. And up next, dozens of Republican-led states are trying to impose draconian new voting restrictions in the wake of Trump's defeat. Now, the good news is those efforts have a high chance of backfiring right in their faces. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. That was a glimpse of a turning point in the fight for voting rights in America. Mississippi civil rights activist and legend Fannie Lou Hamer's 13-minute address to the 1964 Democratic National Convention on the racist brutality black Americans faced for simply, as she said, trying to become first-class citizens and registering to vote. Armed with just her very classy handbag, Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony outlining harassment from local officials and the vicious beating she received in a Mississippi jail a year earlier was so riveting, Democratic President Lyndon Johnson called an impromptu press conference at the White House to get her off the air. On that day in August 1964, Ms. Hamer couldn't help but ask, is this America? 
But 57 years later, that still is America. As Republican legislatures across the country raced to restrict voter access in response to the 2020 election that hinged on record turnout from, among others, black, brown and AAPI voters. Take Georgia, where the state Senate just today advanced bills requiring excuses and identification to request an absentee ballot. And Iowa, where the Republican-led legislature considered a bill to slash the state's early voting and vote-by-mail system. It follows similar action in Florida, restricting vote-by-mail after nearly 5 million Floridians voted that way last year. 33 state legislatures have already introduced 165 bills, 165, to restrict voting access just since last month. Joining me now is Van Newkirk, senior editor for The Atlantic, whose new piece is part of Inheritance, The Atlantic's project to elevate underreported black history, and Mark Elias, attorney and founder of Democracy Docket. And Van, first of all, thank you for your piece. American Democracy is only 55 years old and hanging by a thread. It was so good. You hinged it on your mother's experience. Um, when you see this kind of a th- throwback, an immediate pushback against an election in which people of color were decisive, Does it feel to you like that history that you wrote about is um, an ongoing project and not at all over? Yeah, I think the point of the piece is that I don't even know. I don't know if we can call it a throwback. It is just part and parcel of how uh, people have interfaced with black folks voting in this country forever, uh, especially in the last 50 some odd years. Uh, This is uh, the pushback to against the Voting Rights Act, the push to roll back the Voting Rights Act. Those were birthed with the Voting Rights Act and uh, this entire uh, sort of regime of changes that states are trying to get approved to, I guess, curtail what was record black uh, minority turnout. Those things are things that have been uh, circulating around for years in intellectual circles. Um, And really, I think, uh, again, the seeds were planted as Fannie Lou Hamer made that speech in 1964. And so, yeah, I wrote about my mother. um, Yeah, go ahead. No, go on. Yeah, I wrote about my mother. Um, She passed away uh, three months ago. And uh, yeah, the thing that really strikes me about talking about her life is that she was born, she, she passed away, she was 56. And so she was born before I would say America had any type of real democracy. And so, yeah, it's fragile. It's contingent. It's new. Indeed. And condolences to you on that as well. I should have started with that. Um, and, you know, Mark, it, it's interesting that so there's always been an, an anti-black voter party, right? And it's jumped from party to party, the Democrats, the Dixiecrats, the current Republican Party. There's always just been a faction in American politics whose sort of goal in life is to restrict the right to vote for, for, for black folks in particular. You know, I think about, you know, John Roberts, the current chief justice, whose his sort of goal in life was to gut the Voting Rights Act. And then he gets on the Supreme Court and he gets a chance to do it. And because of that, you now see things like this. Let's note a couple of these. Georgia's got these bills. Oh, Iowa has a bill that cuts mail and in-person voting from nearly 29 days to just 18. Florida is doing its usual Florida thing. What are the most, in your view, dangerous bills out there that could do the most damage? And what can we do about it? Look, I think all of these bills have one thing in common, which is to perpetuate the big lie that Donald Trump told that the reason why he lost was due to fraud with a not so subtle hint that it was because black voters voted. Like, let's just call it what it is. Trumpism has been a racist lie from the beginning. It was premised on the idea that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, and it has continued since then. So what we're seeing now in legislation 
is this effort to perpetuate fraud? It's not how we smart face card out, play them on black voters. There must be fraud. So which states am I worried about? We're about Georgia. We're we're having some trouble with your microphone, Mark. I don't know. Let's let's just give a second to let's see if we can get your microphone fixed up so we can see if we can understand what you're saying. I'm going to jump back uh, to Van while we try to work on Mark's mic. Um, do you think that these uh, what Mark was saying from what I could hear from what he was talking about is that there is this predication that black voters, by definition, are doing something fraudulent, that when they vote and when we vote, when black folks vote, it is by definition likely something illegal has taken place and we have to restrict it. The language we're hearing around that now, the Wall Street Journal did a piece on it today trying to make it sort of precise and sort of elevate it and sound is voter integrity. So when you hear voter integrity, think we got to stop these black folks from voting. In your view, does this wind up having the same kind of backlash that we saw in the 2020 election and in a sense get black people more motivated to vote? I think that remains to be seen. One thing we always want to stress about uh, this push-pull between uh, voter suppression and increased turnout is that level of increased turnout, a level of interest, it takes a whole lot of energy. It takes black folks standing in lines for hours. It takes activists spending their time and money and gas and going out and helping people. And you don't know if those things are gonna be able to hold up from election to election. And the fact of the matter is that making it harder to vote makes it harder to vote and eventually will have an effect on turnout. So I see things like voter integrity, uh, the fight against voter fraud, those are words and phrases that have been around and used as euphemisms since Reconstruction. Those are things that we know uh, have always been levied against the black vote. And you look at the cities, the places that uh, supporters of Donald Trump have used sort of to uh, promote the big lies, Philadelphia, it's Atlanta, it's Milwaukee. It's cities with big black populations that they're really not used to sort of determining, uh, determining elections in the way they do. and they had really high black turnout. Yeah, and let, let's see if we can get Mark back in. Mark, let's see if you can finish your thought. Yeah, what I was saying is that I, I think we need to realize that the Republican plan coming out of 2020 is the same as it was going into 2020, which is to pass laws and engage in practices that simply make it harder for black people to vote. And, you know, if, they, if, if black voters are voting in person, they create long lines. If they want to vote by mail, as we saw a record turnout, now we're seeing restrictions on vote by mail. Well, guess what's going to happen then? We're then going to see long lines again. And we don't see long lines in McLean, Virginia, and Darien, Connecticut. We don't see it in the white suburbs. We see it in the places where black voters vote. And that is a national shame. It is the shame of American history. And Republicans are now preying on the lies that have been told to their voters perpetually. It is incredible that the Republican Party has gotten to the point where they're willing to break the post office, right? The post office that even their own voters could rely on to get their medicine to kill the black vote. That's how determined they were. They're like, we'll break the whole post office to stop y'all from voting. Um, and, you know, Mark, very quickly before we let you go, can this be stopped? Do you have the legislative power? I know you've done a lot of this uh, going in. Can you stop it? Can, can lawyers stop yeah, so it? So, look, I think that we have to fight in court because we can't let them do this. We had success last cycle some places, more places than I thought we would. Remember, in 2013, yeah. North Carolina passed the monster bill. Reverend Barber led Moral, Monday, yep. uh, uh, yep. Moral Mondays, and we beat it in court. So we're going to keep fighting. Absolutely. Van Newkirk, Mark Elias, thank you both very much. Really appreciate you. That is tonight's readout. You can start your day off right. 
when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.